This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. Hello, hello. Good evening to everybody. My name is Nimrod. Welcome to Beyond Governance on this rather chilly evening. Uh, once again, um, thank you for giving us your audience. Uh, and as always, I enjoy your input. Uh, hopefully tonight is going to be different. Uh, if you've missed our previous conversation, do so. Go to our website, download the, download the podcast, and make a determination. I'm sure you've got views or things to share with us. Our SMS line is 34519. Our Twitter handle, of course, is at HiFM. And moving forward, I think it's important for me to acknowledge Howard, even though he put me on a bit of a tight spot a second ago. <laughs> but I believe I've done justice in terms of question or issues that he raised regarding BLF. And I'm sure we'll probably have some time uh, to, to, to probe more uh, on this um, fascinating uh, a group of individuals just to hear more because, uh, you know, it's important to know exactly what happens around you so that we're able to focus our energies on what really matters in the country. Having said that, Howell, thank you very much. Sasha, thank you. And of course, tonight I'm not flying solo as always. I've got Vusi on the, on the buttons here. He'll be from time to time nudging me to take a break and stuff like that. Uh, moving forward tonight, um, I've got a special guest, a uh, person that has become a very uh, close friend of mine, um, a guru in her own right. Her name is Joan Matteson uh, from TMF. Joan, how, how are you, my dear? Fine, thanks to you. Nice Th- to be here, Namrod. Thank you very much for agreeing to come through. Tonight, what we'll be talking about with Joanne is that um, we have seen how, um, you know, corporate governance from time to time being elevated to, you know, to, to a you know, level where we understand exactly what it means for companies uh, not to behave or behave in a particular manner that could result in in a disaster, if you like. Um, And one of those issues that we're talking about is um, Ogbe. We all know Ogbe is a holding company um, that is uh, owned or controlled by the Gupta family in South Africa. They operate in, uh, in areas such as ICT, they're in mining, they are in engineering, they're also in, in leisure. So they've got quite a huge portfolio. Um, but unfortunately, they, 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 are, they are sort of public image, if you like, uh, got to a point where um, they, there's not so much about admiration in terms of their business uh, conduct. Uh, they have been um, cited in the uh, the public protector report, you know, in terms of the state capture. So that's where the the the, the, the number of controversies around um, uh, governance or colossal of governance related issues, which um, is about to bring the company down to its knees, if not if if the whole thing has not happened already. So our conversation with 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 Joanne tonight is going to see is because they are about to delist. Um, if you delist in the in the JSE, there are certain protocols that you that you need to observe for you to to be there in the first place. If those protocols or fundamentals are not in place, uh, there's going to be a natural way of getting out of the system. So essentially, that's going to be our conversation tonight with with Joanne. And please weigh in on our conversation if you really want to just give your thoughts. And again, our SMS line is three four five one nine. Twitter handle is at HiFM. Your thoughts and views are always welcome. Um, without any wasting of time, let me just get Joanne on board here. We all know that for for a company to be listed, there's certain requirements that needs to be filled or fulfilled. Uh, for a layman pencil who's listening to the show tonight, what would you say are those requirements? 
Well, it would obviously vary from stock exchange to stock exchange and also whether you're on a main board or a, what we call an Alt-X, which is uh, sort of more more for emerging companies that are still in uh, more of a growing phase. But key issues would be things like profit history, who are your shareholders, what is your shareholder spread, uh, do you have proper governance in place, how many independent directors do you have, um, and certainly now in South Africa, you're, from 1 April, you're obliged to comply with certain aspects of King 4. So you would need a King 4 application register of your governance, which means you would have to have a whole lot of governance documents in place, such as the board charter, the mandate for all the committees, and everything that would follow after the listing after that. Um, they would also look um, at various uh, debt, debt levels that the company currently has. Those would, I think those would be pretty much the main big issues that would apply. So by virtue of raising all these issues, we, we obviously get into the sense that because they are about to be delisted, um, the indication is that they must have violated some of these uh, documents that you refer to. Well, the grounds for uh, suspension and delisting is to have violated any one of the JSC listings requirements. But it does, if you violate a JSC listing requirement, it doesn't automatically lead to suspension or delisting. It would obviously depend on the seriousness of it. For example, um, if you hadn't put a SENS announcement on time, you're likely to get a letter from the JSE reprimanding you and you promise not to do it next time. Or maybe there's something they found in your um, financials that's not correct. Then you would do a restatement. So it would, dep- it would have to be pretty much a serious issue or a series of serious issues that would actually lead to suspension and delisting. The other requirement, the other option for the JSC considering a suspension and delisting is, is it in the public interest? And that is a very, very wide definition because there are lots of things that you could say are in the public interest. Maybe let's just go back to the latter on the public interest because that's more um, open and that's what most people are pretty much aware of uh, without getting to the technical side of things because it's not every single person who who is affair with the governance requirement from a technical point of view. Um, maybe for, for, for the interest of um, listeners tonight, let's just begin to punch hole on the, the latter part, which is that of public interest. From a divisional point of view, what constitutes public interest? Well, let's, let's go back one step. Why would a con- company be listed in the first place? The company would be listed in the first place to raise capital to grow its business. So the reverse of that would not be in the public interest. In the case of Oak Bay, the share prices dropped dramatically, so it would not be in the public interest to have a company that's not growing, that's not preserving its capital, that's not looking after its asset base. That would not be in the public interest. So that would be an example. Another example would be if the company was uh, trading recklessly or they had found any kind of money laundering activity, to have a company like that listed is certainly not in the public interest. 
So those would be all grounds to explore that option for delisting. I think it makes sense uh, <coughs> uh, when you look at both uh, uh, issues that you raised. One, um, where a company obviously ought to raise capital um, for the benefit of its shareholders. Uh, and secondly, if a company is tra- trading recklessly. But of the two, it obviously takes some time for JSE to act or to uh, impose a penalty. What, what timelines are we looking at? Because I would imagine... Oak Bay ought to have been given some level of opportunity for them to remedy whatever uh, issues or governance-related matters which were brought to the either the board or to senior management. From a time point of view, um, how what could have been the time lag or the period in which um, Oak Bay was given an opportunity to respond? Um, I, I'm not a fay with the, those actual timelines. It's not often that re- that one goes through a delisting <laughs> on these grounds. I, I've been through it because of an unbundling, but but ne- in, never in these kind of circumstances. But I, w- I would imagine there's at least 30 days to rectify it. And if we look at past transgressions with Oak Bay and other companies, the JSE normally sends a letter and gives the company a reasonable period period to rectify it. When their last sponsor and accountants and bankers uh, withdrew, the company was certainly given a substantial amount of time to to try and remedy the situation. And if you remember correctly, it took quite a while to find another sponsor. And I would imagine, as far as I know, they're just in a suspension phase. But looking at the history of it, to try and find another sponsor within a, a reasonable time period, looking at the whole history, is not going to be easy. But I would imagine the JSE has some kind of discretion in the timelines. And if the company writes back and says, we're almost... Uh, Concluding a deal with a new sponsor, give us another 10 days. The JSC would be fairly lenient. They're not looking to delist a company in a hurry. It, it reflects on them to a certain extent as well. I would imagine, I would imagine. But, but take me through here, um, Joanne. When we've got a scenario where a sponsor such as River Group is withdrawing uh, from any transaction or withdrawing from any relationship with Og Bay, for example. Ordinarily, what would have what would have been the the the, the kind of role which um, entities such as River Group would be playing from a governance point of view, which which has obviously material implication now that they are withdrawing um, their support. Well, the sponsor's job is to make sure the company complies with every single listing requirements. So remember, the the sponsor is an outside service provider, so they're generally not privy to the detail that goes on in the company. So they they would advise the company to do something, and then I would imagine, because they haven't disclosed all the details relating to why they've withdrawn, they would have found something, either the company didn't comply with what they said was a JSC requirement in the appropriate timelines, or they could be responding to the general growing antipathy towards the GAPTA group with the state capture report and the ongoing leaks that are dripping out of the media on a daily basis. They might have their own shareholders, their own stakeholders who are pressurizing them and asking them questions, saying, what are you doing with a company like Oak Bay on your books? So the pressure points could be coming from many different sources. 
Interesting. Um, but but here's another issue, because I suppose if one entity withdraws, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody will want to run away from you. The chances are there are those companies who just might be, well, you know, here's a low lending fruit limit, let's go for it. What are the chances of Ogbay getting another sponsor? I think in view of the history that it's now two sponsors that have withdrawn, I think any reputable sponsor would have to think very, very hard about whether they would be prepared to be a sponsor. Personally, I would run a mile because there's there's too much, too many problems surrounding Oak Bay and I personally would not want to be associated with it. I think it's asking for serious reputational damage and your shareholders should be asking a lot of questions of a company that wants to be that sponsor. Taking off shareholders, IDC is one of the shareholders. Yes. And we're made to believe that they invest something like $253 million, uh, into Oak Bay. But now that there's this huge cloud hanging on Oak Bay's head, uh, so to speak, what does it could be? It, obviously, it's a nightmare from a shareholding point of view. But before you take that, 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 that before you respond to that, let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. Welcome back. It is now 21 after 6. I'm joined in studio by Joanne Madison, who is um, giving us insight and, and really high-level engagement of um, some of the issues around you know, delisting of a company. Tonight's conversation is more around Oak Bay because Oak Bay is one of those companies, unfortunately, that is having to be uh, del- you know, delisted from JSE. Before we went to the break, the question that I asked was, now that you know, delisting processes are underway, uh, the, a number of um, partners or shareholders must be quivering in their boots um, uh, now that they are likely to lose quite substantial resources. And one of those is IDC, for example, based on the uh, equity which they've injected uh, uh, into, uh, into Obey. Your, your thoughts on that? Well, as a general principle, there will, there's no law in the country that will pre- prevent you from following your own stupidity. But the other side of it is I don't know what's in the agreement that IDC has. There might be certain guarantees that if the share price goes below a certain amount, Oak Bay still has to pay IDC a certain amount. I'd obviously have not privy to any of those kind of details. But that's part of the risk and reward of any shareholder. And so that again comes back to the whole issue of corporate governance, that when you invest in a company, you need to do your proper research of whether the opportunity you think outweighs the possible risks. And that it also entails looking at who's on the board, who are the other anchor shareholders, doing a proper due diligence before you become a shareholder. I think that's an interesting point, Joanne, because as as a, an investor uh, of that magnitude, for an example, obviously you do have a say in the composition of the board or in how the board, because obviously the board and the company would be reporting from time to time in terms of the, the value of the shares, whether they're appreciating or depreciating and so on and so forth. The question is, surely IDC, as a, as a partner, would have seen this thing up and coming. It's just that we don't have the insight 
as to what has been the, the, the risk mitigation. It's not something that just happened overnight. There could have been signs along the way uh, which the board had to account for, uh, not only for IDC point of view, but all other shareholders uh, who have invested their equity, their money into these particular companies. They could have seen it coming at some point. I don't think, um, this is my view, I don't think the, the state capture report um, um, issues you know, uh, suddenly dropped on that on that point when pronouncement was made. Uh, cumulative over a period of time, the board ought to have seen and management ought to have seen it unless they they were not um, diligent in in dealing with those issues. Well, it depends why they got into the investment in the first place. I mean, looking at all the political issues around the Guptas, it's possible that the IDC got into the investment for political reasons. So then a proper due diligence probably didn't take place. Um, And if they saw... They probably did see things coming, but A, they might have been tone deaf to what they saw, or the other thing is people are quite emotional towards investments, and maybe they don't have their own risk tolerance, risk appetite statement to follow. I mean, a common one is if the share price drops more than 10%, you sell. The nature of their agreement, the shareholders' agreement, might be such that it is very, very difficult to extricate their investment. So there are a number of factors that would have to be looked at. But yes, you know, if one just looks at principles, they should have seen the signs, the state capture, the share price dropping. It didn't drop overnight. It's been steadily Absolutely. declining. There have been lots of leaks. There are lots of other issues with um, the Oak Bay di- directors that sh- should have uh, raised warning bells that they should have paid attention to. I would imagine from a state point of view, if you have had a diligent state, question would be asked as you know from the board and executive side of things that the extent to which political interference uh, played a role in them lowering their risk appetite, lowering the diligence uh, and, and, and oversight. And if the, if, if, um, the board and leadership was not subjected to, to any, some form of political interference, just to look, ignore that, ignore that, would be expecting heads to roll. Absolutely. Absolutely. There should be heads to roll. But, you know, if we look at the history of the Guptas, it's unlikely that that's going to happen. But, of course, heads should roll. Because it doesn't make sense when, when um, if, they want to, if there would be an inquiry into um, some, of the, some of the activities or interventions which from the ID side of, of, of things were, 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 were acted or implemented based on what was coming in terms of the deviation uh, from, the, uh, the, the, from Oak Bay, for an example, one would begin to see what exactly uh, executive, what exactly the board uh, did not do uh, or follow up based on the reports that the executive were presenting. And, and sort of red flags flying. So listen, we are gravitating towards red here. We're gravitating towards red here. You would expect um, from the state o- o- point of view, you know, to really change and look at this in quite seriously. Well, the IDC um, sh- should have been alert to these kind of signals. And in terms of the Companies Act, if they were taking their governance um, 
responsibility seriously, they have an option of putting forward a name and forcing a change of directors on the board. That is the ultimate power that a shareholder has. But if they got into the investment because of friendly relationships, and if one looks at the whole Tageta deal within Oak Bay, it's the, the whole setup of Oak Bay certainly looks like a company that's based on political connections. So it certainly doesn't look like the IDC or any other of the key role players followed proper corporate governance. And so you have this absolute disaster that is unfolding. Unfortunately, this, this even though some of the executive uh, or some of the uh, portfolios within IDC are performed relatively well, but if um, the, the, the Oak Bay is anything to go by, um, the, the, this really present a very uh, unpleasant picture in as far as how the us as a shareholder, because by virtue of, of being citizens, we are shareholders. Um, it, it, it casts a serious doubt on the, the diligence nature of the board. It does of the board, but it also, in terms of IDC, if somebody's going to get a loan from IDC, one also wonders what sort of processes are they going through to give loans to other companies. And it taints the whole reputation of the IDC. So that is also something that they should be mindful of, but... Clearly, as a political entity, it's not top of mind awareness for them. What, what, what do you think? Um, one of the issues that I want us to probe here is the whole issue of the, uh, those emails, more than 100,000 emails which were unleashed by Mailing Guardian at some point. What would, it, what would you say the, the, the veracity of those emails on the company itself? Well, I think in any other country, after the first lot of email, heads would have rolled. But this is not a normal country at the moment, <laughs> to put it mildly. And so I think the media has done an absolute awesome job about pursuing the story endlessly, day in and day out, so that the message is getting out to a wider and wider audience that this is absolutely unacceptable. And people on the ground are starting to question, where is proper leadership at a political level and that cascades into state-owned entities and the whole relationship between state-owned entities and companies like Oak Bay that are supposedly private companies. Absolutely, because I, I, I mean the sheer volume of those kinds of emails says um, we, we've got a serious um, reputation to manage because at this level we, 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 we cannot be seen to have a leadership that uh, almost promote this because th there's not much follow through in as much as people have confessed that I have seen that email. Yes, I've written that email, but natural process would be consequence management. We don't see much of consequence management. We don't see any of that. And the interesting part of it all is that none of the emails have been denied. The only response is we must find the person who leaked them. <laughs> so uh, dealing with the content has been 
a distraction to a lot of people about what this is all about. But I think anybody with any um, kind of serious approach to these matters knows that with this volume of emails and with sources like the Mail and Guardian, it is uh, very, very unlikely that these emails are false. No, I mean, we, we, based on the reports that we've been seeing, those, those, those emails have been authenticated. Most yeah. of them are actually true. Um, I mean, I read, I remember reading a, a, an article from, um, the, from, from, uh, ACCP, um, leadership, Bladings and Money in, in particular, saying, um, he has had conversation with some of those who are implicated in those, uh, uh, emails. A, they themselves considered that, yes, I wrote that email. Yes, I know about that email. But the question is, then what? The government is tone deaf to that. They are still on their narrative, we must find the person who leaked the emails. Irrespective of, because we're not interested in the source, we're interested no. in the substance. Yeah. Because what matters in those emails is the substance, not the source. But that is how far we've deviated from the real issues. Um, it's pretty much like what's going on in America. I mean, Trump has been on uh, overseas trips recently to the Middle East um, and to Europe, that will have serious consequence for the world. But these aren't the topics that people are discussing. People are discussing the scandals in America and the tweets. This, this is the kind of environment we're in to a worse extent locally, but also to a large extent in companies like America. So it's unfortunately one of the big cultural shifts that we're in at the moment. Talking of, of a cultural shift um, in the context of the, the withdrawal of the banks, because I think the banks uh, acted responsibly uh, from a reputational point of view to withdraw any relationship or support uh, with Oak Bay. Uh, we have noted that all the four major banks and other uh, strategic partners withdrew, like KPMG, for example. Um, what sort of message do you think that kind of um, withdrawal meant in, in as far as public confidence is concerned? I think what the banks did is is awesome, but they're also under a lot of pressure because they have to comply with Basel III regulations. So they've got very, very strict criteria of what they can and can't do. And if you look at history of the banks, when people like Roll Causa have spoken out in the past, their business has been affected, whereas now the banks have been absolutely united in doing the right thing. And I think it's only because things have got so much worse. As they say about the ANC, the ANC will do the right thing only after everything else has failed. And maybe business does that to a large extent as well. They keep quiet, they keep quiet, but things are deteriorating so badly that there are pockets of business that are prepared to make their voices heard irrespective of the consequences to their business in the short term. Because I'd like to believe that in the long term, the, the right culture and the right things will happen to the people who are destroying our country. Talking of business, I've always maintained um, on this show and, and elsewhere that the voice of business in condemning or in heading or attacking or tackling these issues head on has been relatively silent or not forceful enough to warrant um, an audience. Uh, perhaps maybe with, with such some, some of those positions are not known. Um, don't you think government, I mean, don't you think business uh, would have had a, fast, a, a, 
a far much more um, vociferous position in relation to some of these issues? I think that a lot of business people do have, but they're weighing their principles against the business consequence. Because as we've seen from people who have spoken out, it's impacted their business. So these high-level business people are weighing up which is more important, their ethical beliefs or creating only shareholder value as opposed to stakeholder value. So, I mean, the, the impression based on that um, supposition is that um, shareholder value take precedent over um, stakeholder value because you're looking at the narrow uh, interest of your decision in as far as the bottom line. Absolutely. And I mean, that, that is a whole debate that could take <laughs> several hours. I mean, it relates to executive pay and doing all sorts of things to reach targets to push um, the share the share price up in the short term. And then the consequences for other stakeholders may be seen down the line, even if it's consequences for a, a stakeholder that can't talk back to you directly like the environment. But in the environment that we are moving into of stakeholder uh, integration, all these things are becoming more and more important, like your community, society in general, employees, and all the other stakeholders. So there are companies that, are, that will survive into the next century that are looking at the impact of what their activities on all their stakeholders. Because if you think about it, without the mandate of your customers, a company can't exist. Absolutely. You can have a shareholder, but if there are no customers, there's no company. Absolutely. So all these different stakeholders are interdependent, and the company must listen to these stakeholders in order to not only survive but to thrive. If you were to borrow from Kim Four Report, for an example, because it's quite big in stakeholder engagement and recognition, would you say the the almost silent voice does not? What does what does it really say from a from Kim Four you know framework, as it were? Well, already in King Three, we moved from. Um, shareholder value to stakeholder value. And if you look at the worldwide movement of conscious capitalism, which to bring that down into layman's terms, is really mindfulness. It's really thinking about what are the values of the company? What are the values of leadership? What are the values of management? And integrating all those elements together so that everybody's on the same page, that there's transparency in what a company does, and you integrate that, and then you listen to your stakeholders, then you're having a conversation with your stakeholders, and that's how you grow wealth for all your stakeholders, not just shareholders. I think it's, I think it's quite important that... Um, Part of the engagement on these issues, we are able to look at an, a company from a from from a, from a multi-dimensional point of view, not only from a shareholder point of view, because I mean, globally, we have, we, it has it has become a common cause that we appreciate all different stakeholders within company, be it employee, be it legislators, be it environmentalist, be it all those that have a stake in long-term view of a company ought somehow ought to be consulted or at least know about it. But unfortunately, this is more of a theory. 
uh, when you look at it, because um, ultimately we can we can talk of a triple bottom line. In reality, um, there is very little done in terms of um, uh, in a three in a, in a three way bottom line. It is more of a financial indicator that really matters, uh, because most of the shareholders are only particularly interested in short term view. Let us make money now. Um, will defer other indicators uh, later on. For now, let us let's make money. I think there's a shift. There are lots of companies who think that. And when I've lectured to small businesses, the first question I ask them is, why are you in business? And they say to make money. And I try to convince them that actually that's a side effect of following your passion and finding a need in society that needs to be fulfilled. And if you follow your passion and you fulfill the needs of something in society, you will make money and your your company will grow and thrive. Um, but it's a shift that's happening. If you start to Google some of the best companies and very successful companies like Google itself, Amazon, Unilever, they all identify themselves with conscious capitalism, which is listening to their stakeholders and acting on them. It's not just a tick box. It's really understanding. And those, the type of things would be to involve and try and improve the lives of the communities where their main businesses are. That way you create loyal customers. If I think of an example now in the recession that we're going through, uh, it's my understanding that this, uh, there's one particular shopping center that I'm aware of that um, one of the favorite places that I go to quite often is closing down because they're not making money and the landlord uh, won't lower the rent. And I know of another property company that has approached the problem in a completely different way. What they've done is they'd rather lower the rent than have empty shops in their particular shopping center. And in my view, that's long-term thinking because when things recover, those customers will remember that landlord. It creates customer, it creates tenant loyalty, and those tenants are also customers in that shopping center and other shopping centers. So here's the difference of a very, very practical example of one company having a very short-term, narrow shareholder focus and another company having a long-term stakeholder focus that I believe will, will give better benefits in the long term. So I don't think it's theoretical. Well, <laughs> good to hear, good to hear. <laughs> We're going to take a break. We'll come back in a second. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Mbele. Welcome back. It is now 15 to 7. It's amazing how time flies. Um, if you've just joined us, I'm joined in studio by uh, Joanne Madison, who has become a pretty close friend. And we're really, you know, probing topical issues around delisting. And the case in point tonight is that of Oak Bay. We all know that Oak Bay um, is about to, to be delisted. And so pretty much that, that is a conversation. Before we went to, to the break, um, Joanne was talking more of um, the emerging thought processes or the emerging patterns around long-term view as opposed to short-term gains that is now becoming a norm in some in some sectors. And, and my view, obviously, I was playing a bit of a devil's advocate because some of these things 
um, you know, they, they, they are nice, you know, they're more palatable on paper, but in practice, um, business typically is often interested in the here and now. But it's, it's also quite interesting to see that there's evolution of some of the businesses. Like, instead of just making a killing now, let's just stretch this rent and hopefully in the long term, you know, our clients begin to appreciate us more. Absolutely. But again, Joanne, um, going back to Oak Bay, now that, um, you know, in the context of conscious capitalism, um, because we are saying, obviously, this, this has been almost a dismal failure of the company appreciating the inclusiveness uh, of business or elevating the ethical conduct or ethical behavior of managing business. So there are obviously consequences that will filter throughout the company. So I want us to reflect in terms of board. What would you say the consequences would be at the board level? Uh, follow up that with the uh, revenue consideration. Lastly, you know, the risk. Okay, if we start with the board, I think if we look at corporate governance and if we really understand what corporate governance means, corporate governance is essentially about leadership. It's about creating a framework and an enabling environment for ethical leaders to grow a company for the benefit of all its stakeholders. So the consequences for the board would be, I think, huge reputational damage. Whatever happens to this company, those board members, if they seek um, directorships on other companies, I think any nomination committee looking at that person's CV when they saw director at Oak Bay present or formerly, it would raise warning bells about what sort of person are they attracting to another board. And as you know, it takes a lifetime to build up a reputation, but it can take a second to destroy it, one thoughtless moment. And if one looks at the chronology of events at Oak Bay, it hasn't been a split second. It's been since it listed, Oak Bay has been dogged by various scandals, one after another. So I think the board is seriously tainted. And I think some of the major shareholders are also tainted for not putting, not exercising their duty to put pressure on the board and perhaps change the board members. Okay, let us pretty much uh, probe um, the, the, the implication at the board level. Um, I think you, you, you're quite correct by saying the board members, individual board members, um, their own reputation, nobody want to touch them after this, you know. But what does it mean from a, a an individual and also collective point of view? Because here's a typical argument. Uh, look, Nimrod, I, I was never in agreement with those issues, but unfortunately, I was up. I was outvoted. Okay, um, you know, someone with a decision when we put them on a the table, we had to vote, but unfortunately, because I was a minority, um, I was outvoted. You know, someone. Well, these are typical responses that I think will come up in an event that somebody wants to be appointed in a particular in a different company and is asked. You know, the rot happened under your nose. What did you do? The case of the dissenting director is quite an interesting discussion. I think the first point is that when a decision comes up and you have a dissenting director, that director must specifically say to the secretary, 
I want you to record that I have a dissenting vote on this matter so that if that particular issue does come to court, those minutes can be hauled out and that director should have at least a certain level of protection against that decision. But here's where the debate becomes a lot more complex because if you are a director with a fiduciary duty to a company, I would argue that your first responsibility is to try and elevate the company and its ethics and its asset base and growth and all those good things that you're trying to do in the first instance. But if that fails through a series of consecutive decisions, then your fiduciary duty is to resign and explain to the board why you're resigning. But it should not be your first port of call because your fiduciary duty is first to the company. How many board members would execute that? Because in my think, in my mind, which I think, by the way, it's a brilliant thing to do. If you feel, because some of us have been in those kind of environments where um, some controversial decisions were taken, and and you you, you report them, guys, look, this is not right, Um, you know, um, this is not right. But because you're a minority in that particular environment, you, you get voted. And and ultimately, you know, you do you do you do the right thing and resign. Um, but unfortunately, um, because we've got such very domineering public uh, narrative or public discourse on 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 whatever happens in the corporate, those that could find themselves um, tainted, the chances are they will because they're not going to be they'll never have an opportunity to present their side of the story, at least in the media space. Okay, here it is. Joanne um, has been found wanting, but we do know that there are records that you have put forward against controversial decision. But because you're dealing with media, unfortunately, we, or, or general population, you don't have a space to, because it's not a court of law, you don't have a space and on an opportunity to say, listen, I had to do what I had to do. But but what sort of recourse those directors are likely to experience? Well, I I think that's interesting. It really goes back to really diligently following your fiduciary duties to a company because it means that each decision, if there are so many decisions that you disagree with, and in the case of Oak Bay, there have been enough that any director who was exercising his fiduciary duties should have resigned a long time ago. And at that point, that director would have had the opportunity to make a public statement. They could have made it on sense. They could have made it in a newspaper. There are a number of channels. That so the pers- there's basically no excuse? I don't think there's an excuse, particularly in a case like Oak Bay where there have been so many red flags to tell a director something is radically wrong. But that director going through that process, it's absolutely imperative that they um, that they record that they're a dissenting vote. Because remember, under the New Companies Act, in as a defense, the director can use the um, business judgment rule to protect them. And if the minutes say that in using the business judgment rule, that would be the, the evidence. Great stuff. But let's take that conversation a level lower okay. at an executive level. Okay, because executives obviously um, don't have uh, powers to, to, to take decisions on certain issues which ought to be elevated at board level. But what happens 
uh, at an executive level where um, some of the dealings um, were clearly untoward, clearly controversial, clearly unethical. Um, what is the what, what what is the position of executive at that level? I don't think you can separate them because these big decisions where you're talking hundreds of millions would obviously be made by the board or the shareholders. But the role of executive di- directors is the implementation of it. So, but those executive directors have a vote on the board, and it would be untenable for an executive director to exercise his right as a dissenting director and then implement the decision. Mm. It's not doable. So that executive director, if he saw things happening and disagreed with them, in my view, he would be obliged to resign and make a proper statement for for record purposes of why he had resigned and would have to have the evidence to prove his case. Do, do you think there's sufficient education among directors, for example, of their fiduciary responsibility? Because the issues that we're talking about now, I, 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 I'm very reluctant to believe there's sufficient education or knowledge of the repercussions of some of the board members. Bay could be just one example, because I'm sure there'll a plethora of boards where um, issues aren't dealt with accordingly. But but because those directors, especially those that are new and are coming into the system, don't really apply themselves or understand exactly what are the consequences. Do you think there's enough education or what's your take on that? Well, I think there are a number of issues here. Firstly, if you're a director, like any profession you follow, you have a duty to understand what it is your duties are. So you have a, a duty to understand what are directors' fiduciary duties in terms of the Companies Act. And if you don't know, then you, you must go on a course. You must speak, make an appointment to see the company secretary and say, please take me through this. You must make an appointment to see the sponsor. Please take me through these issues. And you must refresh yourself on these issues all the time. There's no excuse for not finding out what your duties are. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, the other issue that I want us to touch on is the public image, which obviously Oak Bay is um, literally um, messed up, to say the least. Um, is there a turnaround based on what you you know, know and, and see? Well, that's interesting. I mean, if you look at African Bank, um, African Bank went through a terrible time and they, I mean, going through the um, business rescue process, they managed to separate the good assets and the bad assets out. So I think African Bank has resurrected itself to a certain extent. I think they're still going through the process. They're not out of it yet. So I th- I would think in the case of Oak Bay, it would be very hard to resurrect itself. But y- I mean, it is possible that you get a new group of shareholders that take over their mining assets and come up with something different, appoint a different board. So it would depend how it would unfold. But if you're dealing with the same director base and the same shareholders, it's very unlikely that it can resurrect itself. I I hope so too. I hope so too. But ultimately, Joanne, I think... um for me, what is coming up very strongly in this conversation is the importance of corporate governance and the extent to which corporate governance 
is no longer a nice to have, but a must to have. And, and because the consequences of failure to acknowledge and elevate corporate governance is what we're seeing. Your take on that? Absolutely. I mean, as I said earlier, corporate governance is about leadership. And if you go back to the earlier philosophers such as Kant, that's exactly what he talks about is the right ethics. The right ethics is the starting point for everything you do in life, whether it's business or as an individual. Thank you. Well, we've got, um, we've got SMS that's, that's came through. It says, hi, Nimrod. Um, I hope you'll you'll be taking on the appalling racist Andile, his Malema past and his Gupta present connections. That's Shamat, um, black Jew in, in inverted commas. Uh, well, thank you very much for that. Um, uh, please throw them in. We very much appreciate your views. Um, we still have a couple of seconds uh, to go. Uh, weigh in on our conversation. Tell me exactly what you think, because I think the conversation I'm having with Joanne is very fascinating, but also very educational, because we learn a lot in terms of what it means uh, to become an, a director, either as an executive or non-executive director. Your take? I think absolutely one must avail oneself of every opportunity to educate yourself, not only about your own profession, but about what goes on in the world around you, because lessons in life apply to business and to a person in their individual capacity. Whatever ethics you have, I mean, there is a debate whether business ethics are separate from other ethics, but there are certain universal laws that that, uh, cross both private and the public sphere of your life. I've always maintained uh, on that issue, Joanne, that um, there's nothing called business ethics. Uh, Ethics is ethics because ultimately it's about the character of an individual. Um, As a person, you don't behave differently when you're at home and when you're at work. Um, So there there isn't anything called business ethics, but like we said, it's a debate. (laughs) Indeed, it is. (laughs) A big one. (laughs) Having said that, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming through, uh, Joanne. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. There we were. Uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it at there. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure being on or be, being in your company tonight. Until we do this again next week, shalom. <laughs>